Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in Louisiana and Texas. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. And we are returning to Star Trek talk. We're talking Trek again. At this point, I'm going to get you to watch one every year is what it seems like. Because we watched Wrath of Khan uh, back in September of 2019. And then, of course, when we first started doing these, I got you to watch The Voyage Home. And now we are doing The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek VI. My fear with that is that maybe Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home are like the classics that everyone should see. And uh, starting today, I'm on this like trial of not being like a Star Trek super fan and like having to talk about the deeper cuts, like some of the more like four fans only entries in the canon. So um, hopefully I do a good job of discussing this film today. We'll see. I mean, you know, it's just Star Trek. What's the worst that could happen? Maybe I'll get you to watch Galaxy Quest at some point. Who knows? Oh, that's a classic. Of course, Star Trek VI did canonize the even-numbered good, odd-numbered bad Star Trek rule, which I'm sure that everybody has talked about it on every podcast that even tangentially talks about Star Trek by this point. But if you include Galaxy Quest in that canon, it actually fixes it because you go from (laughs) First Contact, which is eight, which is generally considered by most people to be good and was commercially successful to insurrection which is not great and then galaxy quest came out and then nemesis came out which is also not great although i know that that's the one that you're most familiar with yeah insurrection and nemesis i would have rented those from blockbuster as a kid so i have like vague fuzzy fond memories of them even though the uh common wisdom is that they're complete trash (laughs) and i should throw those uh throw those memories away so maybe maybe I'll make you return to one of the bad ones in the future to like fix my brain to realign yeah, myself. I mean, it's all Star Trek to me, you know. It's not <laughs> I, I'm not going to be miserable. Insurrection is mostly fine. It's just that it's very very dull, but it's not the most dull. And when I was a kid, I was really excited about Nemesis because I loved the Romulans and the Romulans never really got to appear in the movies until Nemesis. So I was really excited by that. Although, you know, it has uh, a lot of other elements that are not good. So it's a little bit like pizza, like even bad pizza is kind of good. Yeah, I mean, no pizza is as boring as like Star Trek, the motion picture. But yeah, <laughs> even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. Well, have you had any time to watch any other movies outside of the, the Trekverse? I uh, recently sent you uh, my top 15 list for 2020, finally. Yes. And I did see his house since the last time we spoke, and I really, really loved it. Well, we just printed our um, top 10 films of the year list the same night we're recording this, and your ballot uh, put that one in the top 10, which I was uh, happy to see. Yeah, I'm glad of that, too. I mean, I think we talked earlier that this year I felt like I was probably going to be a statistical outlier, which I am not always, but am sometimes. And I do see that that has been borne out. I also tried to predict what the top 10 were going to be, but I don't know what the algorithm is that you used. I tried to do like a point system, but I think that you include a step that determines 
uh, score based on how many lists it appears on, not just how high on the list it is, right? Yes, pretty much because, like, say if Cece and I both picked We Are Little Zombies was, like, very high on both of our lists, but no one else in the crew had seen it. That one making it on a top 10 just feels wrong to me. So I kind of include everyone's list kind of like as a vote for like what should be there. And then I weight it based on how they're ranked after that. So yeah, I have a weird like tiered ranking system. But uh, I think the the lists are more egalitarian. Um, I always do it both ways just to make sure I'm not completely fucking up. But um, <laughs> every year I, I, uh, <laughs> I crunch the numbers both ways and I always go with my unique <laughs> weighted ranking system that's like all tiered and... Uh, boring math crunching i also think that this is the first time that my number one movie was not on anyone else's list but i also i guess saw that coming based on previous discussions where i was like oh i finally saw i'm thinking of ending things and you were like everyone else hates it i was like oh okay i guess (laughs) i have that to look forward to i thought maybe it might end up on anna's or cc's you know i knew that you and Brittany and James uh, did not care for it, but I was like, oh, maybe maybe Anna or Cece will come through in the clutch like Georgia and <laughs> set right what once went wrong, but I guess not. But, you know, I can I can live with that, I guess. The consequences of this are much less consequential than had Georgia not come through in the clutch, so I'll just leave it at that. I think getting his house on the list, though, was a good push. I mean, it's it's one of those movies that should be on a lot of these best of the year roundups. And just because Netflix is so bad at promoting their own material, it just kind of fell through the cracks. You'll see it pop up every now and then, but it should be getting a lot more recognition than it is. It was so good. In almost any other year, that might have been like a number one movie for me. I just, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and I'm Thinking of Ending Things spoke to me more personally. And I am shocked at how high the invisible man placed on our um, top 10 list, because I don't know that it was the number three movie of the year, but we all liked it just fine enough, I guess. Yeah. It's not um, anyone's favorite, but it is more of a consensus. Like we all signed off on it. So it it did kind of like sneak up there. Yeah. That and portrait, I think also had the benefit of coming out in theaters before. Mm Mm-hmm everybody went into lockdown and quarantine. So there was more of a universal consensus of, oh, we actually all saw that rather than, oh, you know, I watched Black Box, which (laughs) I doubt anybody else did, you know. And I also saw The Nest, which, again, I don't know that anybody else would have. It was just one of those, like, 11th hour. It's December 15th, and I've only seen six movies this year because there's a plague and the world is ending. But let me go ahead and just Google movies that came out in 2020 and see what I can get a hold of. That's how I found Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight, which, you know, again, those honorable mentions, most of those would not have been on a top list uh, had 2020 not been such a weird year. But what about you? What movies have you seen since we spoke last? I've been watching just sort of like random stuff. Actually, like in a very um, genuine way, I've been hitting shuffle on my uh, Letterboxd watch list and just picking the first one that's um, available streaming on a service I pay for. This is a very convoluted effort to get me to stop ordering blind buy DVDs of stuff I'd never seen before. I'm trying to get that like endorphin rush without actually paying money. One of them was Tank Girl. Ooh, Lori Petty. Star Trek Voyager's own Lori Petty. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) 
I, I'm looking forward to this happening every movie <laughs> to find one Star Trek actor. <laughs> it's really good, and I kind of remember seeing Tank Girl on those like Comedy Central movie broadcasts. They should just like pad out their schedule with like mm-hmm. a midday movie. But no one has ever successfully watched a movie start to end on Comedy Central with all those like commercial breaks and just like the Unless way they're it edited. Was Clue. Clue, yeah. <laughs> Clue might be the only one. Well, I uh, I felt like I had seen Tank Girl before because of that. Like I had definitely seen out of context like snippets of it on TV. It is way more vulgar and experimental and just like wildly chaotic than what I had remembered about it. Lori Petty stars as a you know it's a comic book adaptation. It's set. In the near future, 2033, uh, and the world is low on water, and this corporation is um, basically hoarding the few water resources that are left and leaving everyone else to scavenge in the desert unless you're, like, exorbitantly wealthy. None of this Mad Max plot stuff really matters. Lori Petty is basically what Harley Quinn is in Birds of Prey. Like, she is just bouncing off the walls as this, like, anarchist... Bugs Bunny character that just makes fun of everybody and everything. Um, and it's just wild sexual mania from start to end. Um, and she drives around a tank and blows stuff up. It is so fun. And yeah, if you want to talk about like the, you know, Swamp Flicks top 10 coming together this year, I did not expect Birds of Prey, like a superhero movie, to rank as high as it did either. Yeah, especially since I had no superhero films at all on my list whatsoever. Yeah, that's an upside down year right there. And I had one of my top five, which is uh, unusual, too. And also, I did see it, and I just didn't care for it. Even though I do love the Harley television show, as we have discussed briefly at other times and off mic often. But it just didn't work for me somehow. There were individual moments that I really liked. Uh, Harley getting her sandwich, them stealing food from the grocery store, her and little Cassandra. But it just didn't come together for me quite the way it seems to have for y'all but i'm glad that it did for y'all do you have more affection for tank girl because i feel like they're on a very similar vibe like they're almost even doing the same like betty boop voice uh as the main character in both films there's something about the lo-fi nature of tank girl that makes it work better for me than the sort of high budget grafted onto the dceu sort of film idea that the Birds of Prey movie had that I didn't care for. Tank Girl is like kind of knows what it is and Harley Quinn knows what it is, but it's still trying to tangentially connect to things that are diametrically opposed to it. Whereas Tank Girl is free of those trappings. Yeah, I mean, the comic book stuff, I don't know how closely it follows the plot of it, but they use the comic book panels as sort of like supplementary material to make the budget look bigger than it is. A lot of establishing shots and like traveling between locations is basically just frames from the comic book on the screen um, in Tank Girl. But for the most part, I don't think the plot really matters at all in either movie. So yeah, like like you're saying, Birds of Prey does have this like connection to this larger body of work, but I don't think I pay that much attention to those. Like those just sort of like whiz by me without me really caring. Even though I've seen all of those DCEU movies, even though I don't care about them. (laughs) I've seen seen almost every single one of them. Yeah, I don't know. It just didn't speak to me. But Tank Girl, you know, I have a lot of affection for eternally. Many years ago, Lindsay Ellis did a retrospective on every woman-led superhero film that had been released at that time which basically was just like Supergirl, Catwoman, 
Electra, <laughs> Barb Wire, and Tank Girl. And Tank Girl came out on top of that list, which, you know, wasn't saying a whole lot at the time. But looking back, now that we've had Wonder Woman and Birds of Prey, and I guess Captain Marvel, although my feelings on that have only soured over time, it really is the best of what we used to have as far as like superhero movies, or at least comic book adaptations, with women as the lead. It's definitely worth returning to. Um, I saw it for free on Hoopla, compliments my library. So I, I definitely recommend people checking it out if they have that kind of access. Or, you know, if you just happen to have a VHS copy that you taped off of Comedy Central in the middle of the night in 1996, you know, if that's <laughs> the kind of access you have, you should check that out too. I don't know. That Comedy Central edit definitely would be missing a lot of like the vulgar sexual content, which I feel like really upped my enjoyment of it. I really love when a movie feels like it was made for kids, but is also super explicit. That's a sweet spot for me. You know what? Fair enough. That's valid. <laughs> That's valid. I also watched a really sleazy Brian De Palma movie, which I guess is kind of a redundant statement. <laughs> which one? Femme Fatale from 2002. Oh. Starring Rebecca Romaine. Have you seen this picture? No. I, I'm going to date myself here. I really very clearly remember the advertisement for it in a newspaper uh, <laughs> in 2002 i remember it being very like erotic and being like hmm okay this is confusing but no i have never seen it it is definitely an erotic thriller past that genre's prime i guess like the mid 80s to early 90s would have been like when those were like being churned out uh so this is like over a decade late and, you know, this is Rebecca Romaine around the time of her X-Men character. In this, she stars as a femme fatale trope, like straight out of a noir. It opens with her naked in a French hotel room watching Double Indemnity on a little cathode TV. Uh, so it's, it's very much winking towards the trope, like, immediately. Oh, boy. The opening sequence is some A-plus absurd Brian De Palma nonsense. It is a diamond heist set at the Cannes Film Festival. And in order to get the diamond that she's stealing from this actress who's wearing it like as part of her jewelry for this like red carpet event, um, she poses as a paparazzo and takes this woman's picture so seductively that the woman agrees to go to a bathroom with her and make out. And like while they're having sex in this bathroom stall, she like there's this whole other convoluted team of diamond thieves that she like steals the jewel off of and replaces it with a fake. It is a very absurd opening sequence to a very trashy movie. Okay. Basically, she like double crosses her team of diamond thieves and has to like run away and hide from their scrutiny. Like she cannot be a public presence anymore in Paris. She has to like sneak out of the city and another paparazzo takes her picture. It's uh Antonio Banderas outs her as, you know, still being alive and around. And then she has to, like, screw him over to, like, free herself again. It's this whole convoluted series of, like, double crossings that go back and forth. But mostly it's just this really sleazy erotic thriller in, like, that Paris Hilton era of fashion where, like, everything is super low cut. Uh, everyone is absurdly skinny with those, like, choppy frosted bangs. It's such a hideous look. And you have all the, like, really exquisite, over-the-top precision of like De Palma's camera work playing off of those like Paris Hilton like trashy fashion vibes it's just really great early 2000s sleaze maybe the last like really great movie he's made I, I haven't really been interested in anything he's made since that time so 
maybe I'm missing out on a gem, but uh, this feels like the last hurrah for like classic De Palma. So it falls into like the good to great arena for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like all of his movies, it's sleazy. It's maybe a little amoral. <laughs> it's leering, but you just can't deny when it works. Like it's just really fun to watch. It's so so dumb. It pulls the most insulting, idiotic twist, like a sitcom level twist at the end. And instead of getting mad at it, you just have the biggest, dumbest smile on your face. You're like, I can't believe you did that, you goofball. Uh. (laughs) Morning. Two months ago, a Federation starship monitored an explosion on the Klingon moon Praxis. We believe it was caused by overmining and insufficient safety precautions. The moon's decimation means the deadly pollution of their ozone. They will have depleted their supply of oxygen in approximately 50 Earth years. Due to their enormous military budget, the Klingon economy does not have the resources with which to combat this catastrophe. Last month, at the behest of the Vulcan ambassador, I opened a dialogue with Gorkin, Chancellor of the Klingon High Council. He proposes to commence negotiations at once. Negotiations for what? The dismantling of our space stations and star bases along the neutral zone. An end to almost 70 years of unremitting hostility, which the Klingons can no longer afford. So, for this week's Lanyap episode, I had Brandon watch one of my personal favorite Star Trek films, um, which, you know, considering that there are uh, 13 to 14 of them, depending upon whether or not you count galaxy quest as we were discussing before this was one that you were talking earlier about tank girl being on comedy central all the time for whatever reason star trek 6 the undiscovered country was on usa constantly when i was a kid but star trek 6 basically takes the role of the klingon empire as being the analogous equivalent of the russians in the Cold War as it had been since Star Trek's inception in 1966 and with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the falling of the Berlin Wall, and with the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Fictionalized that as the ecological disaster caused by Kronos, the Klingon homeworld's moon praxis exploding due to overmining and other bad safety practices. After Star Trek V, which was a box office and critical disaster, they had a minimal budget to sort of wrap things up, and they brought back Nicholas Meyer, who had directed Wrath of Khan, and also had, both prior to and because of Wrath of Khan, a reputation of basically pulling off a really great sci-fi movie on a pretty minimal budget. I don't know if you remember when we talked about Wrath of Khan a couple years ago, there's a part in Starfleet headquarters when Spock and Kirk are walking around and they sort of stand under a floral arch, and that arch is actually an in-camera miniature that's only like four by four. So Nicholas Meyer had a real eye for basically turning a shoestring budget into a functional film. So they brought him back to do Star Trek VI, and have the sort of peace between Russia and the West as played out fictionally 
between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. What are your sort of initial thoughts based on your viewing? I do struggle a little bit with this one, like finding a hook as someone who doesn't watch a lot of Star Trek. Like Mm -hmm. Wrath of Khan, right? That's a classic. And I feel like that needs to be seen just for like cultural knowledge in the larger zeitgeist outside of like Star Trek nerddom. Voyage Home, it's a fish out of water comedy. And I really enjoyed it. It's probably my favorite one we've watched so far. I don't know why I'm saying probably. It's very much my favorite one we've watched so far. (laughs) Uh, It's just such a like joyous lighthearted movie that one leaves me feeling great this one i just kind of struggled for a hook like what i saw it doing was like filtering through these different genres that i don't particularly care about like i I know you love i love a conspiracy thriller yeah like political thrillers love it my favorite thing not really my bag and then it switches from that to like a courtroom drama for a minute and then there's like a prison break sequence that stuff didn't really work for me, but the larger like who done it mystery of who was framing them for firing their lasers at the uh, Klingon ship mm-hmm. that worked for me. And I think we can get more into particulars, but the politics of how racist uh, Starfleet is in this movie is interesting too. Yeah, the fact that Klingons are not in the wrong here is at least playing around with the central dynamic of like heroes and villains on the show in a, in a way that, that grabbed me. Yeah. So I don't know. It took me a while to find something to, to hook onto, but I think that core relationship between the Klingons and Starfleet, I think is interesting. I don't remember what it was that we were recently talking about, but so often when something that is sort of mass produced for Hollywood and consumption for presumably white cishet audience when it tackles topics of racism, it usually goes like the help approach or the green book approach or the driving Miss Daisy approach in which you, the presumably white viewer, do not perceive yourself as a racist because you don't look at the you know racist characters in invisible figures and see yourself because you're not fighting for segregated restrooms. And I think what uh, Star Trek VI does is makes you confront that a little bit more than other films that have a more explicit relationship to race, where it is the characters that you know and love and have known for nearly 30 years at this point being kind of gross and being close-minded and confronting the way that their perceptions have allowed for uh, international but really interspace disaster to happen just because they failed to be open-minded and fell into the traps of their ignorance. And I think that there's something to be said for that, that it is confrontational in a way that most films about racism refuse to be. I also think it's worth noting that the great irony of the plot is that in order to prevent peace, various parts of Starfleet and the Klingon Empire and even the Romulan Empire, their plan is basically foolproof. If it weren't for like Spock acting quickly, they definitely would have prevented peace through an international coalition. That's the irony of the film. It's like <laughs> that they, they're actually capable of working together quite well as long as the goal and the intent is to prevent peace among worlds. 
Yeah, they're collaborating on their right to continue a war against each other. <laughs> like, yeah. they want to conspire to continue that bloodshed. Yeah. It's also funny, like, in contrast to the last episode we talked was with Snowpiercer, and that was about a coup. This coup is fueled by racism and, like, xenophobia in a way that is more accurate to the real-life coup we just saw than Snowpiercer was. Yes. And there's a line that Kirk says in this movie that some people fear that the future means the end of history. And that really is a huge part of a lot of the revisionist lost cause histories that we see that have taken root in the American public consciousness and led to things like QAnon and led to things like the January 6th insurrection, that there is a mythologizing of the past in a way that is inconsistent with the reality of it. And we see Kirk even confront this within himself. And I think that it's actually kind of powerful in that moment because a Klingon did kill Kirk's son and he has like a reason to have a personal vendetta, but he has this moment where he says, let them die. And then realizes how horrifying the words that just came out of his mouth are. Yeah. And they get played back to him later in like a recording he has to hear his own words while he's on trial. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, I did say that. That's fucked up. <laughs> and I think that there's something to be said for the fact that Star Trek Six does not let our heroes off the hook for their ignorance. And it's not as cut and dry as just like them saying horrifically racist stuff like that. Like some of it is, you know, when the Klingons are coming aboard for like a um, diplomatic meeting, like a dinner one of them makes like a guess who's coming to dinner joke, mm -hmm. which would have been like hundreds of years out of date by that time in the right. future. But it's still like a, you know, racist joke on its face. But then there's also more like subtle kind of stuff where Kirk will say like, everybody's human as a way of like getting everyone on the same page. Yeah. And all the other alien species are like, wait, are you examining that phrase? Like, do we need to continue that phrase <laughs> into this, this far into the future? Like, yeah. There's also more like subversive, like under the surface racism that gets called out. The Klingons are right. The Klingons are right that Kirk and his generation are holding on to old ways of thinking that are inappropriate and incorrect and revolve around historical enmities that have no place in a progressive future. I like that. It allows our perfect Star Trek heroes to be like, oh, <laughs> I see my portrait of Dorian Gray and it's super racist and I don't like that about myself and I'm going to have to do something. And you can see um, Spock like trying to guide someone towards like a better way of thinking and like how quickly they can become radicalized right under his nose into like going towards the dark side of that. Yeah. I think that this is, in canon, the first time that we've seen the Vulcans be actually kind of terrible. Enterprise, uh, as a series, would do damage to the Vulcans that were kind of irrevocable. But this was the first time that we could see like a Vulcan extremist in the canon and be like, oh, maybe devoting yourself to pure logic will occasionally create a Ben Shapiro and not always, not always a Spock. Sometimes you're going to end up with someone who's easily radicalized or who manages to do the mental logistics and gymnastics to justify their racism, even though if 
uh, Valeris was actually inspecting herself at all, she would be able to look at it from the outside and say, oh, here is the irony that we are working together. That's got a real life corollary to the way that people try to look at like empirical data to make like policy decisions without reckoning that like humans create the computers that crunch those numbers and that those are like racist in themselves. Yes. You think algorithmically, if you were able to just create a computer that digested data and allowed it to render decisions about justice, you'd think, oh, this would get rid of all of the problems that are inherent in unknown interior biases and, uh, the racist systems, but then technology can't even always tell when a person of color comes into a bathroom for an automated light because they're registered to detect the reflection of light off of Caucasian skin. So clearly it's not, uh, technology is not the perfect delimiter of this either. Uh, I also love the casting of that role so much. Oh, Kim Cattrall? I wanted to ask you what you thought about the casting. Let's let's talk about her first. Okay, so... Earlier, I was saying I was, like, struggling to find a hook in this movie. That's not so with her character. Her, like, hardcore punk, like, Vulcan haircut in this movie is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I find her so fascinating to look at. I feel like I've seen her at, like, at a punk show before, (laughs) smoking a cigarette outside. I think she did a really good job in the part. She is perfectly icy in the way that, like, a Vulcan character would have to be, Uh but does a good job showing, like, inner conflict while like trying to figure out what move she's going to make under Spock's nose. And even though I kind of pinpointed her as the culprit early on in the mystery <laughs> segment of the film, that didn't ruin any of the uh, enjoyment for me. Like I liked watching her squirm as like her attempt to plant gravity boots in an innocent person's locker did not pan out. She like squirms like, oh no, what do I do now? Yeah. Visibly on camera. She does a lot of great facial acting in the film. I thought she was really good. Yeah, her discussion of sabotage is also uh, pretty great. I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but originally that role was supposed to be Savick, and Kirstie Alley was supposed to return from Wrath of ah. Khan to even further sell just how deep the ignorance and racism goes. That it wouldn't just be one of Spock's Vulcan protégés. It's one that we've known for a long time. One that we like based on previous films that we've seen her in. Gene Roddenberry, who passed away before this film was released, but this was the last one that he was involved with, he vetoed that idea. And I think possibly for the best. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, whether or not that would have made the betrayal cut deeper. I can see the idea behind it. But I can also see how poorly that could have been handled, potentially. I remember thinking when we talked about Wrath of Khan that she's like too sultry to play Vulcan in the first place, uh, Kirstie Alley. She's way too human for that part. Mm-hmm. So just on like a basic casting choice, I just think King Patrol is like better for the part. Um, as far as the larger storyline goes... Um, all I really know is that it works as is. Like the fact that he's trying to train someone as his replacement mm-hmm. and how quickly that person can be radicalized right under his nose uh, feels very pointed and, you know, well observed politically. Yeah. Not to say they couldn't have made a different point by bringing the Christy Alley character back, but I think the point that they do make with the character is perfectly fine as is. This is weirdly the Star Trek film that seems to have the most stunt casting. <laughs> First of all, Christopher Plummer as General Chang, is great. He is so good. 
I love him in this role, even though his Shakespeare quoting in the final battle does get pretty obnoxious. The film acknowledges that. I also love how Christopher Palmer, a lot of times the Klingons when they're together by themselves are just speaking Klingon and Christopher Plummer's like, nah, uh -uh, I'm not learning that shit. He's like, (laughs) they'll have, they'll cut to him and his first line in the middle of the scene will suddenly be in English while everybody else has been speaking Klingon and everybody just switches to English after that, uh, which is great. (laughs) Also Iman for whatever reason is in this movie. What are your thoughts on, on that? I liked her when she was making Kirk, feel <laughs> conflicted about his own sexuality. I thought that was kind of fun dynamic. She's a uh, shapeshifter character and she keeps transforming sometimes as like giant male beasts and sometimes as Kirk himself in a way where she was like playing with his like reputation as a Lothario. I thought that was fun. Yeah. I also love Bones's reaction to that first like make out where he's like, God almighty. Will this never end? Will we never age out of the point where Jim Kirk is constantly just trying to fuck his way out of problems? Um, Which is not necessarily always true on the original series. It was generally more implied. And, you know, Kirk is not as much of a ladies man as his Zap Brannigan-esque mainstream reputation would have you believe. But it's not not there. That stereotype comes from a place. And this uh, movie plays with that. What did you think of Kurtwood Smith as the blind president of the Federation? Looked great in the makeup. The voice was super distracting because all I could hear was Kurtwood Smith. <laughs> that voice is so distinct. Yeah. That's like uh, when I was watching Tank Girl the other day, too. Um, Ice-T is one of the mutant kangaroos. Mutant kangaroos. It was like yeah. so distracting because <laughs> of that voice. What, did Christopher Plummer as Chang work for you? or? Yeah, because I don't think that voice is nearly as distinct to him. Mm-hmm. Like any other rich-voiced stage actor, like an Alan Rickman would have had that same delivery, you know? I would put it on the level of like Christian Slater has like a single scene cameo in this movie. Yeah. You cannot see that character as anything other than Christian Slater is in this movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Our love is God. Hail the Klingons. Let's go get a slushy. No, I get it. <laughs> His mother was the casting agent on this film. And That's he was hilarious. just a fan. I mean, this is like post-Heathers. Like, he had a career at this point. He was just like, Mom, I want to be in a Star Trek. Who could blame him? Yeah, I mean, who could? That scene was originally supposed to have Grace Lee Whitney, who does appear in other scenes in the film as sort of Sulu's blonde communications officer, Janice Rand. That is also a character from the original series. In fact earliest promotional material for the original series had her Kirk and Spock as kind of the power trio, which, you know, McCoy obviously ended up sort of taking that place where she was kind of like Kirk's secretary in the early episodes. But there was um, something tragic that happened to her at NBC content warning for sexual assault. If you want to look it up, we won't really get into it, but she left the show pretty shortly thereafter. And, Roddenberry found out years later that that was why. And he has her, he put her in a cameo in every single movie after that to be like, Rand is still there. She's still part of this crew. And Rand becomes a pretty integral character in like the apocryphal sort of like novels and such that are about the Excelsior and Sulu's time as captain later on. What about, uh, what about Brock Peters in this one as the racist admiral? I don't know who that is. Who's Brock Peters? So he previously had appeared as the Admiral in Voyage Home, 
Uh, he's in some of the video that is like, stay away from the Earth. The Earth is a quarantine planet. And he played Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. So as an actor, he has a long and storied career as someone taking part in stories about racism and the system. And he was specifically cast for that reason. And in fact, there are stories of him on set having difficulty saying some of the lines that he has to say because they are hideous. They are some truly ugly, hideous things that he says. And of course, Peters also later played Joe Sisko, the father of main character Benjamin Sisko on Deep Space Nine. And of course, Joe Sisko's whole thing is that he runs a restaurant in New Orleans in the 24th century. So he will reappear <laughs> in Star Trek and has a little New Orleans connection there. That's cool. I'm trying to like place exactly why that sort of metaphor here doesn't really bother me. Like I feel like whenever you do sort of abstracted like fantasy and sci-fi metaphors about like American race relations, it can be really grating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of like that movie Bright. I never watched it, but <laughs> the one about the fucking orcs. Yeah. Like that being this like sort of white and black race war metaphor was like really annoying on its face yeah but i don't know for some reason in this movie it works and maybe it's because it is a little more nuanced and intricate than it's it's not a simple one-to-one metaphor right. there's like a lot going on here that sort of like unexamined racism it works in this film it actually feels like it does have something to say yeah it coming out in 1991 at the end of the cold war and being You know, there's the great line from Chang where he's like, oh, Captain, warrior to warrior, you know, in space, all warriors are cold warriors, which is a little on the nose. But as the Cold War was coming to an end and as the time of cold warriors was coming to an end, it was an appropriate way, I think, to close out the adventures of Kirk and company. You know, of course, generations would come out a couple years later and ruin that. But until then, this was a really nice flourish of the signature that brought everything to an end, even if it's not necessarily the strongest film of the series. It's a strong ending. Yeah, and it ends on a open note, right? Like it's it's ending with them like opening piece and like creating something new and fresh. Mm-hmm. Like instead of like having their last hurrah or like characters being killed off or something, everyone's on their feet at the end yeah, and looking towards like a brighter future. You kind of pitch this as like a hopeful insurrection film. What is that like swelling of hope you get out of this? When we were talking about like the, the coup in Snowpiercer, the coup in this one fails and it fails based on the strength of flawed people. It doesn't succeed because Kirk and company are perfect. The coup fails and democracy is maintained and the possibility of further peace is opened up because of individuals who recognize that there are greater virtues than hanging on to the past and there are greater virtues than hanging on to tradition. And like Kirk says, that the beginning of the future the unwritten page it's not the end of history it is a continuation everybody stands around at the end you know everybody claps and the president's there and there's just something about it that is much more hopeful 
than the dystopian science fiction of today. You know, this is a utopian science fiction that looks forward to a peaceful, prosperous future. Yeah, you're right in that it's like very um, honest about just how much people will fuck up. <laughs> like the fact that the heroes in this story are so in the wrong for so long, like unexamined, uh, and then have to like get their minds right by the end. It's at least more interesting than most like morality tales like this. Like, you know, in superhero movies, for instance, like the hero is never the most interesting character, especially when they're like all good and fighting for the side of good. It's always more interesting for them to have some sort of flaw that makes them more relatable. And, you know, I also like that everybody gets together at the end, you know, not just the crew, but also Spock's dad is there. Spock's dad's always around. And also that one Klingon ambassador that hates Kirk's guts. The one who's always on Earth being like, we want Kirk's head on a platter. He's also there, and he looks super grumpy that Kirk and company have saved the day, which amuses me to no end. I think that the use of Brock Peters, to circle back real quick, who we did see in a previous film as an authority figure, was better than trying to create a new authority figure. I thought that was great. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I like it. I don't know how else to explain Yeah. I can't say I'm as enthusiastic about it as The Voyage Home, but that's a tall order. Yeah. I do think that bringing in Kim Cattrall is like a big risk as such a central character because she's not one of the main people you care about if you've been watching these movies. But I think her dynamic with Spock is actually like way more interesting to watch on a scene-to-scene level than even the side prison break adventure between Kirk and um, McCoy. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I found that dynamic on the ship between the two Vulcans, like, pretty engaging, even if they're piecing together a mystery that's fairly obvious before the answer comes out. And yeah, the metaphor at the center about race relations and... International relations. Yeah, and just people just, like, stepping in their own shit over and over again, not knowing what to say. <laughs> like, they, they really want to broker this peace deal, but they keep fucking up because they have so many, like, unexamined um, biases that stuff really worked for me. It was definitely an interesting movie, even even if I do think we're starting to get into like the four fans only end of the series. Well, the good news is there are no more original series cast films that I would be interested in making you watch. Okay, <laughs> you're you're in luck, I guess. I can hang out with Data again, which uh, was my favorite character as a kid. Really? Yeah. Data was my least favorite character on the Next Generation. <laughs> I didn't care for him. And I'll admit that when I got into Star Trek, I was young enough that I didn't really understand how television was made and how fiction worked. But if you watch The Next Generation, Data, B, and A plots are so common to the detriment of many other characters. I guess because he struck a chord with people, even though he doesn't really strike a chord with me. My favorite character was Troy which I understand is strange. Most people would not agree. She was basically like a space princess who decided to enter Starfleet and become a therapist to help other people. And she had psychic powers and she's utilized very poorly throughout the show's run and even worse in the films. And when I was a kid, I just wanted, you know, you would tune in expecting like yeah it's a star trek episode every week i'd be like maybe this one will be about troy maybe this one will be about crusher maybe this one will be about geordie or roe or Worf 
or Riker. And although everybody got an episode or two, some of them fewer than others, Data is basically like the deuteragonist of the show, where the only person who gets more A-plots than he does is Picard. And as a kid, I found that very strange, and I blamed the character of Data for it. But also, on a more weird existential level, I was always bothered by how often the day was saved solely because of Data. Like, I know that this is an obscure piece of nonsense, but we see what happens to ships that get caught in time loops or pass through space man wasn't meant to know that don't have a data aboard all the time. So the episode cause and effect, there is a ship from like 75 years beforehand that gets caught in a time loop and only escapes because the Enterprise gets caught in that same time loop and figures it out and breaks both of them out after like 24 days. And I had like an existential horror about other ships in Starfleet encountering things that they could not handle because they didn't have a data aboard because on TNG it seemed like data saved the day constantly. I was less (laughs) upset or frustrated whenever Wesley Crusher saved the day because, you know, Wesley Crusher at least was not like a unique life form as far as anybody knew. He sort of made it seem like the Enterprise's sister ships that might be out there might also have like a kid genius of some kind of board who can help save the day. But if they don't have a data, they're fucked. They might get caught in a time loop for 75 years. They might encounter a group of aliens that can erase everyone's minds and like in the episode clues, but because they don't have a data, they can't get out of it. Data just became like sort of the resolution button for so many episodes. There's the episode of the TNG called The Game, where Wesley even comes back and the day is still saved by data. And it's just, when I was a kid, it freaked me the hell out to think about how many ships there were in Starfleet that were constantly, you know, getting stuck on quantum filaments, getting stuck in time loops being trapped in the coronas of decaying stars and they weren't able to get out because they didn't have a data. And so the very presence of data induced in me an existential horror that persists to this day. I think I was um, just delighted by how funny he was. Like his comic timing on that show was amusing to me as a child. <laughs> I think I was just like looking for something else out of the show than you were. I support that. I support you getting yeah. <laughs> what you got out of it. I just wanted to share, you know, the fact that I have been a strange neurotic person for as long as I can recall. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a Star Trek episode without a very specific rant uh, to cap it all <laughs> off. So, Like we talked about in the top of the episode, we finally posted our top movies of the year list this weekend. I'll include that in the show notes. I gotta watch Deerskin, I guess. It's so fun. It's about 70 minutes. It's very silly. And it takes a lot of pot shots at like macho vanity and like self-important auteurs in a way that's really good. And it has a great comedic part for Adele Hanel, who I assume you loved her performance in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So why not watch her in another movie from last year? All right. Fair enough. You've got me now. I'm caught in your sacred deer trap. <laughs> Possessor also everybody seemed to love. So I got I to gotta track that one down, too. I would say Possessor and Baccarat 
from our list are the ones I think are most on your wavelength. Okay. I think you would enjoy those a lot. And I believe Baccarat's on the Criterion channel. Possessor, you still have to pay to rent, unfortunately. And Swallow. I think you dig Swallow, too. Yeah, I remember wanting to see Swallow based on the trailers, and then, you know, it never came out in a theater. At this point, I feel like I'm recommending the entire uh, list of 10 films, which uh, I think that means we did something good. I mean, they're all genre films, and they're all highly stylized, so I'm very proud of that selection, I think. Next week, we are moving on from the best of the 2020 stuff. That was our January. Early in February, we're going to do some Valentine's Day episodes on the show. Not our usual speed. Next episode, we're going to do a grab bag of rom-com movies. Mostly from the 90s and the 2000s. Me, James, and Brittany. What, what's coming up? What are you guys going to discuss? Uh, my pick was Party Girl, starring Parker, oh, Posey, Parker Posey. In which she transforms from a New York City club kid into a library clerk. Great film. What's Brittany's choice? I'm hoping it's head over heels, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, she picked music and lyrics, which I've never seen. Oh, okay. And James picked My Best Friend's Wedding, which I haven't seen since I was a kid. Wow, all right. I mean... Those are all very bold choices, and I look forward to hearing you guys talk about it. It is a grab bag assortment. I don't know that they have much to say about each other, but hopefully it'll cover some interesting corners of that genre. We'll talk to you all then. All right. Love is in the air, everybody. Talk to you next time. (laughs) Bye. So take that look out of here. Oh